I'm excited to share this morning. I'm excited that we're in a new series on parables and that I get to kick us off and uh, talk about some, some great stories that Jesus tells. Before we do that, I want to take five minutes or so to uh, share with you a little bit about my trip to India. I've been back for two and a half weeks and I'm finally feeling normal and I thought I'd share uh, just a couple stories, encourage you about what God is doing around the world. And I'm always grateful uh, for Creekside and for people that show a lot of interest in what I do and who say they're praying for me and for my trips and for India and the work that's happening over there. So uh, I'm grateful for that. Thank you. This was my eighth trip. Uh, we are currently supporting 55 church planters over there, and it continues to grow. And every time I go, I get to go see a new area, and I get to see the guys that we're supporting and encourage them, see how the money's being spent, and then, you know, talk about strategies and moving forward, and then coming back here and sharing stories. So uh, here's a school that we built last year. And uh, so this is, uh, I went to a place, I went to the poorest state in India called Bihar, and Bihar it's considered the graveyard for missionaries, but it's not like that anymore. It's actually a very open place, and there's a lot of really good things happening. But one of the ways that you get into these hard-to-reach communities and share the gospel with them is by providing them with something that is really needed. And so uh, I, I got to go here. We funded this school last year. It was our big project. It's not quite done yet, but you can see there's currently 220 students that attend there. It can house up to 300, and we have the ability to build a second story up there. We drive into this place and we're in these like back roads and we're driving through slums and it's about four or five different slums all connected together and then uh, children that live in these slums go to this school. Before this school was here, there was no school and kids didn't go to school. So this is the first time these communities have access to education. And the missionaries that we support, they're, they're local Indian missionaries, but they moved in to the community. They sold everything they had, they bought land, and they live in the slums with the people and provide education for the children. So what an incredible ministry. Uh, we'll flip it over there, Jeff. Yeah, so I got to take some picture of the kids. Again, like um, this school's been running now for four or five years. And the, so before the building, they were just meeting outside in like bamboo huts and like straw, like uh, uh, straw roofs. And so it was rainy or windy and they're either not able to go to school or they're suffering through it. And so um, providing the building is really needed. Uh, next one, Jeff. So this is John. This is my good, good friend and our key partner there. And this is one of the ways that, we, uh, that they have influence in these communities. This is a water well. And I, as I walked through the slum area, they, uh, there was about six water wells like this that were, that were provided. It costs a couple thousand dollars and it's a way to provide clean water for the community. Again, before... The, the missionaries came into this community, there was no access to clean water. And so by providing education and providing clean water, people realize, oh, these Christians, they have something to offer. They actually do care about us. And that's their entry point. And then um, through the school and through the efforts of the missionaries, they, uh, they planted a small church and people are starting to respond to the gospel for the first time. And this is an unreached area. The church has never existed here. These people have never heard the gospel preached before. And as the Christians have moved into the neighborhood, people are opening up and receiving the message with joy because they recognize, hey, Christians care about us. So I love going there and seeing this. This picture represents a lot to me. We're having um, tea with the village elder. I love the hospitality of, of the Indian people. And as we walk by, this is the elder of the village. And um, uh, our friend told me that the village is notorious for um, gangs and violence. And the people that live in the slum... They, um, they all own guns and machetes, and they're all, they, they're all like thieves and robbers. 
but they were super friendly and and uh, they really appreciated the missionary and like welcomed him in and like so because I was with the missionary with the with the with the guy that planted the church or planted the church in the school you know everyone was super friendly and welcoming and we had um, buffalo tea milk which was really interesting but um, I just just love the hospitality but you could just see how walls were broken down and people were opening up um, and and it was really evident to me as I walked through the slum with uh, with our missionary everybody knew him everybody waved at him everybody talked to him he'd gained so much respect and had such a great reputation in the community because he really genuinely cared and I asked him the question I said Sager his name is Sager I said do you enjoy being here And he says there's nowhere else I'd rather be this is a guy that came from like a middle-class area in India and he sold everything and moved, he literally moved into the slum with his family. And he says, I love this place. These people are my family. And he reaches out to them and his life is sold out for them. Them, It's absolutely incredible. And so this is another school. So I got to see two schools in, uh, that were built in slum areas in Bihar. And so this is another couple that again, picked up everything and moved and we built this small school for them. Uh, flip over, Jeff. Thank you. So these kids waited for four hours to come. And uh, when we got there, they were so excited to see us. Um, this school's got about 170 kids. Again, it's right on the river Ganges uh, in, the, in the slum areas in Patna, which is the capital city in Bihar. And again, before this school, before these missionaries moved in, these kids didn't have opportunity to go to school. There was nothing for them. So they just kind of hung around and, you know, the cyclical life of poverty just continued. But now there's hope and now there's opportunities and they've planted a church in the school and they meet and people are coming to faith because they realize it's the Christians that care. It's the Christians that are doing something to help our community. And so as we walk through the slum, I, I tried to grab some pictures of just what slum life is like. And so here's a little girl playing Barbies in, and that's not even their dump. That's just kind of what the land looks like there, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> and we flip over. Yeah, and so these girls were all playing cricket and they're playing cricket with a broken plastic water bottle and a stick like they don't have any proper equipment but there was and they're all in bare feet and running on the dusty roads but they're happy and as they saw us coming in again much like the other slum they're just such so open and welcome because of the influence of this missionary everybody knows him everybody knows that he cares and that they are there to help and i asked him i said have any white people ever come to this village and he says there's a very good chance you were the very first white people have ever walked through and uh, I could tell because there was one kid that took a, look took a look at me and like ran away screaming, absolutely terrified. So I'm going to assume it's because I'm white, but not for any other reason. So anyways, uh, I could tell lots more stories, but I just want to, I want to encourage you that your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are doing a great work. And as they reach out and share the love of God through really practical ways, people are coming to faith and the church is growing. So please, I would just ask you to continue to pray for the church in India and for what God is doing there in and through the, the people that we support and others. So thanks, thanks so much for praying. Okay, we're going to jump into our new series here on parables. We're going to immerse ourselves in these famous stories that Jesus told as we prepare for Easter. So I think we get to work through uh, six or seven parables. I don't quite know the math, but uh, this is awesome. What a great way for us to prepare for Easter, to just really immerse ourselves in the words of Jesus. And of course, we know that uh, parables were these stories that were told um, to teach us important values and lessons. And oftentimes you can teach these things better through telling good stories than just saying this is the way it is. You can illustrate your point better through telling stories. And so that's what Jesus does a lot. He tells stories in order to help people understand more fully what God is like and how we ought to respond to him. And so 
I thought there's no better place to start this series than on the most famous parable ever taught. You know what it is? What would you say is the, the most well-known parable? Prodigal son. Yes, everybody knows the prodigal son. Even if you've not been to church, if this is your first time, chances are you've heard this story and you are familiar with its concepts. So we're going we're gonna to jump into it and I... Um, I don't think the story ever gets old. And so I think this morning we'll hear some things that maybe we haven't heard before. And it's always good to be reminded of good news and what God is like as Jesus uh, teaches. So Luke chapter 15. I, I hope you have your Bible so you're able to follow along. They are going to be up on the screen. But as I work the way through the passage, it will be good for you to just have your Bible open. So the prodigal son starts in uh, verse 11. And we're going to read all the way to verse 32. But I'm actually going to start at the beginning because we want to understand the context. So we're going to read verse 1 and 2 and then read the whole parable. So 15 verse 1 and 2, just so we understand who Jesus is talking to and what the context is. So here we go. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so then Jesus goes on to tell three different parables. So, third parable that he teaches, the parable of the lost son. Jesus continues, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off to a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But when he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring a fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, and he's alive again. He was lost, and now he's found. And they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near uh, to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered to his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he has been found. So here's our parable. This parable is powerful in every culture and in every context, but if we t can take ourselves back into that culture, it will pack the most weight. Um, and so I'm going to try and take us back in time to first century Middle East and try to 
tell this story as if it's being told for the very first time to people who live in that culture and understand that context. And as we do this, it, it might become even more powerful than it already is for us. So the first thing that we notice, uh, who is the story told to and under what circumstance? The religious leaders of the day, they're frustrated with Jesus. They're frustrated with who Jesus was hanging out with and who Jesus was eating with. And they were frustrated that Jesus was hanging around with sinners. They didn't like his table companions. They did not share in his compassionate, reconciling ministry to the sinners of the day. For them, for the teachers of the law, their understanding of God was that you had to follow the rules and that you could only associate with those that followed the rules, that did all the right things. You could only associate with the right people who were born into the right family. And anyone else was considered unclean. So they were very surprised that here is this man who claims to be a Jew and a great teacher, and he's associating himself with sinners and with tax collectors. Why would he do that? Jesus tells this parable to paint a much different picture of who God is and what he is like. He's trying to break down their preconceived notions of what God is and how he thinks. So the story begins. The younger son asks for the share of the inheritance, which is a really big deal because um, you don't get an inheritance until the father is dead. That was just normal back then. So you had to wait until your father to die before you got your inheritance. So the, the son asking for his inheritance was like saying, Dad, I wish that you were dead. That's what I was saying. I wish you were dead so that I could just get what you owe me and I could run away with it. He wasn't just asking for money from his dad. By asking for the inheritance, he was actually removing himself from the family. And this was the ultimate sin. This was like dishonoring his father and dishonoring his family. He says, I want, I want what's owed to me and I'm going to walk away from my identity with you as the family. In the first century Middle East, in, as is... As it is in many ways still today, family was everything. And the worst possible thing that you could do is walk away from your family. That is like the ultimate sin. But that's exactly what the son does. How does the father respond? They would expect, if you're listening to the story, you would expect the father to respond something like this. He should punish his son. His son just publicly dishonored his father by saying, I want nothing to do with you. I wish you were dead. And so a normal response, and the people listening to this parable will be like, oh, what's the father going to do? He should pick up a stick and he should start beating his son. And if he beats his son to death, that's okay. Because what he did was so bad. And this is the kind of expected response that they would think the father would do. This is why today in middle, and still in many uh, Middle Eastern countries, if a child converts from one religion to another religion, from a family religion to something else, whether it's you know, if you're Islam and Muslim and you convert to Christianity or Hinduism, and we see this in India lots, the family actually excommunicates you and says, you have walked away from us and you're out. And in extreme situations, they will actually hunt down that person and try to kill them. We hear stories of this, that, that in many places, it is, uh, there's great persecution for walking away from your family. It's one of the worst things that you could do. What does the father do? He doesn't beat him. He gives his son his share of the inheritance. And this would have been shocking, a shocking response for those that were listening to this parable. What? Why would the father do something like that? Isn't the father angry? Why isn't he exacting his rightful punishment on this rebellious son? That's what he is owed. Why would the father do something like this? Already Jesus is challenging the perspective of what God is like. So the son takes his inheritance, which by the way, wasn't just money. You know, back then they didn't have banks. It's only you just go to the bank with an ATM card and take out cash and give it to your son. The father had to actually sell off uh, pieces of his land 
and his materials and then convert it to cash and give it to his son. So the father really was, really had to give away a lot. Uh, in the Greek, when it says he got together all that he had, that meaning is to actually turn it into cash. So he sold off stuff in order to give it to his son. It gets worse. He uses, the son uses the father's money and he goes to Gentile terror, spends it, which is not good. He takes the money, he goes to a distant land and he squanders it. And the word for squander literally means wild living, reckless, immoral behavior. For a Jew, losing your wealth to a Gentile was grounds for excommunication. You've got wealth and you go to a Gentile land, a non-Jewish area, and you lose your wealth. That is so bad. This son, he has insulted his father. He's dishonored his family. He's sold off the inheritance. And he has spent it in wild living in a Gentile territory. But it gets worse. As if Jesus hasn't painted a tough enough, hard enough picture already, the son keeps digging the hole deeper for himself. The son blows away the money and he ends up working with pigs. If you know anything about the Jewish culture, and even today, uh, pigs are considered the most vile animal. Jews are still forbidden to eat pigs. And if you are even in the presence of pigs, you are considered unclean. You want to avoid them if at all possible. The Jewish teaching, the Jewish Talmud at the time said, Cursed is the man who raises swine. But the son, not only is he raising them, he's actually trying to eat the pig's food. This is like the lowest of the lows. You can't get lower than this. There is no lower. Jesus couldn't have painted a worse picture of rebellion. When I teach as the students, I try to give a modern day example. What, what would this be like? And I try to tell a story about, you know, today a kid st steals everything he has from his parents. And then he goes and robs his neighbors. Then he takes all that money, he goes to the streets, and he spends it on drugs and alcohol, and he joins a gang, and he kills a bunch of people, and he ends up on skid row, and he's hit rock bottom. And I try to explain, like, how bad this could possibly be. But it, it doesn't even come close to the picture that Jesus painted here. Because we don't live in a culture that has an equal comparison to what the son did. It was the lowest of the lows. The story continues. The son comes to his senses, and he decides to return to his family. And he comes up with a three-part speech for his dad. If you look at the scriptures, he's got three things that he wants to say to his dad. He says, oh, I, I'm the I'm lowest of lows. I got to go back. I know I'm not going to be reinstated as the family, but I'll leave these. Maybe, maybe he'll accept me and uh, I can become a slave. So he says this. These are the three things. I've sinned against heaven and against you. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And number three, make me a slave. So the son is walking back to the father and he's like rehearsing this. I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me a slave. And he's rehearsing it, wondering, how's the father going to respond? What's going to happen here? As he's come home, his dad is waiting for him. It says that he is filled with compassion. I have like this picture of the father standing at the front porch and every morning waking up, looking up into the horizon, wondering, when is my son going to come home? And then that day happened where he saw his son coming home. And he is filled with with compassion. Jesus is emphatically saying to the people, this is what God is like. You thought he was like this, but he's not. This is what God is like. This is the first of many surprises. As I said already, the son has excommunicated himself from his family. His dad should have given up on him. He should have said that he's no longer my son. He's not in my life. I'm not waiting for him. He's dead to me. But he's, he doesn't do that. He is waiting for his son to return. It gets better. The father runs to his son. We might say, well, big deal. So dad's running to his son. You have to understand that in that culture, it was incredibly shameful to run um, to somebody. 
especially an honorable man in that culture, a Middle Eastern patriarch, somebody who's older, somebody who has wealth, somebody who's kind of like in the upper caste, you don't run. If you run, that is incredibly degrading and shameful. You walk in a dignified manner. I can't overstate this. Um, John, you saw a picture of John. He's 66, and every time I go to India, I work closely with him. And he's like an upper caste, dignified, honorable man. And he literally walks like this, slow and dignified, chest up. It drives me crazy because I'm always traveling to and from airports and trying to catch trains. And he's way behind me because I'm like, I'm like in a race to get somewhere, right? And he's, he doesn't care. It's slow and dignified. I would never, you will never see John run. That would be a shameful, shameful act. John wears pants. Back then they wore robes. So the, the, the father would have run and his robe would have been flipping up and would have been exposing his undergarments. Incredibly shameful. That's the picture. People would have been like, he ran? Really? Like that is so degrading. The father, he doesn't care. He runs to his son and he embraces his son. It gets better than that. He embraces him, kisses him. By kissing his son, not only is it a hug, he's also identifying himself with the son by kissing him. That's what it meant back then. It gets even better. The son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. That's number one. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. These are important to say, right? This is the act of repentance. Coming back, here's what I have done wrong. But do you notice he doesn't get the third thing out? Make me a slave. It doesn't actually get out. The father interrupts him immediately. Make me a slave. And the father doesn't want anything to do with it. He doesn't even get it out of his mouth. The father interrupts him. The son tries to make things right by just make me a servant. Right? He's trying to earn his acceptance back. I'm, father, make me a servant. and Maybe I can just earn your favor again. And the father wants nothing to do with it. It's so indicative of human nature, isn't it? We come back and we try to make it up to God. God, I've screwed up. But here's the things I'm going to do so that maybe you'll love me and accept me again. And God wants nothing to do with that. Because he's not about works. He is about grace. We've talked a lot about that in Galatians. So it gets even better. Instead of becoming a slave, the father reinstates him as a son as a valued member of the family. So he puts his best robe on him. The best robe would have been his father's robe. So the father says to the slave, go, go get the best robe and put it on my son. So he's clothed in his father's uh, robe. Put a signet ring on him. It's not just a ring so that he looks good. This would have been like the, the seal, the stamp of the family stamp, right? So like when you're sending a letter, you got the wax thing, you put your signet ring in, like part of the family. This is the father's way of reinstating his son as part of the family. Gives him sandals. This is what distinguishes the difference between a slave and a son or a slave and a family member, right? Slaves have bare feet, but if you're, if you're higher up, you get sandals. So these, these all have a symbolism to them. And then the father calls for the fattened calf. This is the best choice of meat, and it was saved for the most honored guests, like a wedding banquet or like a community event. This is something that happened once, maybe twice a year. It's not like you just go to the butcher and you buy yourself a nice piece of meat. You raise the piece of meat yourself and you save it for the most important event. And you invite your community in to celebrate. And the father says, this is the moment we're going to have a big party. This is what the father is like. When we come to him, he puts his robe on us. In the New Testament, it makes me think of clothe yourselves in Christ. We get to be clothed with him. He welcomes us into his family. In the New Testament, it talks about being children of God. Uh, co-heirs with Christ. We actually are adopted into the family of God. What an incredible reality. 
And then he welcomes us into the family and he puts on a big old party in heaven. So the application here, it's obvious. There's nothing we can do so grievous to fall out of favor with God. There is nothing that we can do. He stands at the door, looking out on the horizon, waiting for his kids, longing for them to come home. And all they need to do is walk towards him. Make that step of repentance, coming towards the Father. And he will greet us with open arms and a fattened calf. That's emphatically what Jesus is saying. This is what God is like. You thought he was like this, but you're wrong. He's like this. Some of you here today, you might feel like the younger son and you need to hear this story. God welcomes you home. And there's nothing you can do to earn his favor. You don't have to work for it. All you need to do is walk towards him in faith. Just walk towards him and he will embrace you and accept you as a son or a daughter. He will invite you into his family. He will lavish you with all the blessings of heaven. That's what this passage is teaching. That's what Jesus is saying. This is what God is like. Often we think the story ends there. We think, well, this is the story of the prodigal son. But it's actually the story of the prodigal sons. There's two sons, right? So let's talk about the second son. What happens to him? He's outside. He hears the party. He finds out what's happening and he gets really, really angry. And as we look at, it, look at this and in its context, we're going to realize that he actually ends up dishonoring his father even worse than the younger son did. So let me explain that. Being an older son in that culture meant having a few really important roles. Here's two of them. One of the roles of the older son in a situation like this would have been to act um, as the reconciler between what is broken in the family. So his job would have been to fix the relationship between the father and the younger son. As the older son, you are the glue that keeps the family together and you do whatever it takes to keep the family unit strong. So his role was to bring reconciliation. He clearly didn't care about that. Number two, when there's a big party going on and the family's there and the community's there, the role of the older son when something of this magnitude is happening was to serve the honored guests. As the older son, you are the representative of the family and you go around with the best food and you serve the guests who are most honored as the representative of the family. It's a very, very important role that only the older son would do. But he doesn't even show up to the party, right? He doesn't fulfill his God-given role. And the, the key phrase here is, he refused to go in. And this refusal is a, in front of the whole village, in front of the whole community, was a huge act of dishonoring the father in front of everybody else. Again, it's difficult for us to understand the significance of this move. We might just think, well, he was just on the outside. What's the big deal? He refused to go in. But in that culture, in that context, it was massive. To not fulfill your God-given role as the older son was a huge dishonoring to uh, the father. It gets worse. Uh, the father goes out to the son and has a conversation with him. And the son, look at his response. He says to his father, look, father, when you address the patriarch of the family, you don't start off with that. You don't say look. You say sir. You say father. Maybe you say master. But you don't dishonor your father by saying, look, here's what's going on. What an incredible insult and humiliation and degradation to the father. It gets worse. All these years, I have been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Does this sound like a son or does this sound like a slave? How does he communicate? The older son, he heaps further insults on his father by telling him that he feels like a slave. 
that his father treats him like a slave, not like a son. He accuses his father saying, yeah, you treat me like a slave. You've never given me anything, which is even probably even more hurtful than what the younger son did. And so how does the father respond? Again, the people listening to this would have been like, what horror? How could you possibly disrespect your father like that? Grab a stick and start beating him. And if he dies from the beating, then he's getting what he deserves. That's what you would expect a father's response to such a humiliation and degradation. But what does he do? He shows lavishing grace once again. The father, he leaves the party. He goes outside to the son and he pleads with him. He doesn't command him. He doesn't boss him around. He doesn't tell him what he has to do. He pleads with him. This is like this wooing or appealing or yearning. Please, please come inside. And he speaks tenderly to the son. My child, my son, this is language of intimacy, language of belonging. He assures the son, this is where you belong. This is your identity. You are my son. You are mine. Come inside. And then he says, you are always with me. He reminds his son of the availability of the intimacy that they get to share all the time. But the problem is, the older son, he just didn't see it that way. He didn't recognize it. And the father says, all that I have is yours. He says, there's this great inheritance. There's this great party going on. Everything I have is yours. You are welcome. Please come inside, my son. You are welcome. You are worthy, my son. And then the parable ends there. And the son is standing on the outside. And we don't know how the story ends. And that's the brilliance of how, the, how many of these parables are told. We're left guessing. Did the son repent and come in? Or did he stand on the outside forever, looking in angrily at his dad's um, grace and forgiveness? We don't know. We have to guess. John Piper says this. I think it's up there. The deepest void in the elder son's heart was that this was not precious to him. Being with the father every night for supper and running the estate together was just not a joy to him. And that's really where the downfall is. Andrew Murray, he says this, The elder son thought that he was serving his father faithfully for all these years in his father's house, but it was in the spirit of bondage and not in the spirit of a child. He was simply living in unbelief, in ignorance and blindness, robbing himself of the privileges that the father had for him. You see, the older son, he's like the teachers of the law. He did all the right things. He was striving to be good and responsible, but he was forgetting and neglecting what mattered most, being a child of God, living in this intimacy with him. He missed out on the benefits and he was judging those people that were experiencing it, that experienced grace like his younger son. What an amazing father that Jesus paints here. He says, you want to know what the father's like? This is what he's like. There's two wayward sons. And to the younger son, the father says, come home. And to the older son, the father says, come in. Both were on the outside looking in. Neither of them get what they deserve. Both of them are shown extravagant grace. If we talk about the sin of each of the brothers, both wanted the blessing of the father without the father. Right? The younger son took his stuff and he ran away and the older son never actually engaged as a son. He thought himself as a slave and never actually participated in what it meant to be the son. The younger son tried to find himself in wild and reckless living and the older son tried to find himself in righteous living. And both failed. And both missed the point. And both were on the outside looking in. 
I think some of us here might identify as a younger son, but I suspect that many of us, like me, probably identify more with the older son, or we've done the right things, but sometimes we've done it more out of duty and obligation than we have out of a genuine love and response. And sometimes we miss the point that it's really not about following all the rules. It really is about following Jesus, about experiencing this connection with the Father who loves us so much and so often we just miss it. We get too busy. We don't believe it's true. We come up with excuses, whatever it is, and we miss out. So I don't know where you find yourself today. But for me, the wor- for me, as I've studied this passage, the words have been mulling in my brain over and over again. The words of the father that says to his kids, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You are always with me. Everything I have is yours. So I want to I end with uh, reflecting on a painting. This is uh, Rembrandt, one of our famous painters. And uh, hopefully you can see it okay there. This is one of his final works. He died in 1669. In this painting, we see the son. He's returned home in a wretched state. And he kneels before the father in repentance, wishing for forgiveness and a renewed place in the family. And his father receives him with gentle care. But standing to the right is the prodigal son's older brother who's crossed his hands in judgment and he objects to the father's compassion for the sinful son. So I'm going to invite the band to come forward and I'm just going to ask that we would take uh, some time to reflect on this parable. What is the Lord saying to you today? How do you identify yourself? Maybe this painting has some things to say. Um, But just reflect on what, what a good response might be for you as you reflect on these incredible words that Jesus teaches us and tells us what the Father is like. So I'm going to pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us as Father. You don't reveal yourself to us as a judge or as an angry boss. You over and over again in the scriptures say that you are Father. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for that. And we thank you for this message today, this message of grace and love And this intimacy and this connection that we get to participate with you, I pray that we would believe that this is true and that we would act upon it. Lord, speak into our hearts, we pray, this morning. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and to our minds, I pray. Thank you for who you are and how you reveal yourself to us as a great and merciful and compassionate God. We love you, God. And our eyes are fixed on you. Amen.